Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to episode number three of the Peer Project Podcast. My name is Chris Duke. Uh, First of all, thank you so much for joining us again for the third instalment of the Peer Project. And thank you for listening and giving us all sorts of great feedback for the first two episodes. One with Joelle and Naughty and then Keith Walsh last week. Remember, be vulnerable. That was the message from Keith last week. If you haven't heard them, please go back and listen. There are some amazing mental health journeys and some amazing mental health stories. Now, a bit of a change this week than what I said was going to be. So we are still going to have a wrestling referee, uh, Aubrey Edwards, on the show. She's going to be on next week's podcast because I thought to myself, I can't host a podcast about everybody's mental health journeys without telling you about my own mental health journey. And... I can't be a special guest on my own podcast, but what I can do is enlist the help of a special guest host, daytime and morning TV queen, Lorraine Kelly, is the guest host for the Peer Project podcast today, and she's going to be interviewing me about my mental health journey. So here she is, Lorraine Kelly, hosting the Peer Project podcast. Episode 3. Hi there, everybody. I'm Lorraine, and today I am so glad to be talking to Chris Duke. Now, Chris is a best-selling author, also a bit of a campaigner as well. I think that's fair to say, isn't it, Chris? (laughs) Yeah, well, you can say that. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And we're going to be talking about something I think that has affected just about all of us, really. Um, And and certainly uh, during the past couple of years, I think we've all felt a bit overwhelmed, you know, anxious, all of these things. And and I think what's great and what's positive is that people are actually talking about their problems with mental health and how they're dealing with it and how they're coping. And I was really interested to read your book because we actually come from quite similar backgrounds. And if I can take you back to when you were a kid, if you can just tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up, what your, your home life was like and, and how, you know, that's obviously in all of our, all of our childhood impacts on our lives, but what was it like for you? Um, well, growing up in the East end of Glasgow is, um, I mean, the East end of Glasgow is kind of known as a quote unquote rough, rough area. Um, something that I, I had never experienced because I had um, I'd always got the sense of community 
from Clan Hill rather than the the rough side of things, and um, and I and I really really loved that. Um, but we. Because we, we we lived in a kind of two bedroom flat in the east end of Cran in the east end of Glasgow, um, went to Catholic school, um, just brought a, a pretty normal life. Uh, you know, my parents worked hard for for us, um, for me and my sister, and and that kind of rubbed off on me later on in my life. But um, it's it's funny because a lot of people say to me that um, because of the issues that I had as I was getting older. They would have assumed that I had a pretty rough childhood, but I didn't. You know, I was we were we were well we were well looked after. My parents worked hard. I went to a decent school. It was it was okay. Yeah, it's really interesting hearing you talk like that because I was born first of all in the Gorbals and then Bridgeton. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mum and dad were the you know, they worked really, really hard. They looked after it's me and my wee brother. Um and sounds very, very similar actually, um, and instilled that sort of work ethic as well. Um, and there was there was kind of that, I don't know if you found it, but there was kind of that pressure. I don't know whether pressure is the right thing to say, but that thing of you had to work hard, you know, mm-hmm. and you had to work really hard at school and you had to be, it's almost like you had to be, your parents were giving you the opportunity for you to be better. You know, there was that going on. Did you feel that sometimes? Yeah, I mean, it was always it was always instilled in us to work, to work hard and try and try our absolute best to 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 make the best life for for ourselves um but there wasn't really that much pressure in terms of that you know i i did well at school i was quite um quite i don't know i was a bit of a swat in the class really um which is probably why i was bullied i think similar we're far too similar yeah because I mean I was a sport I used to get I used to get bullied for being a sport did you find that a little bit you know you you, you would get a little bit of that it yeah. was quite hard sometimes I wouldn't put my up I wouldn't put my hand up to give the answer because I didn't want everybody to think that I was the teacher's pay I, I remember I was in uh, I was in primary three and I got sent up to the primary seven class to drop something off to the to the teacher and they were in the middle of a spelling competition or a spelling thing or whatever and the teacher when I walked in the teacher was livid because the primary seven pupils couldn't spell the word juice and I right. I walked in at this exact time and it says right Chris <laughs> um you tell me how do you spell juice and I was like uh j-a-e-curly-k-e curly k e and then so then the teacher uh, Mr. Crowley, his name was, went mental at this primary seven class. Like, See, even this primary three can spell juice. But you were a child prodigy. <laughs> so you were all right. You were fine. Well, what were you I'd, like I'd say... as a kid? <laughs> no, no. Oh, I was. Um, I was a performer, and even now, yeah. I still still love that because I think the first time you and I met was um, was when I was in a show in in Aileth. Um, oh, that's right. Yeah. Yes. That's how that's how we that's met. Right. Um, Very well. Gosh, now that's going back. How long ago would that be now? About about fifteen years ago. No, it ah, can't it. be. Oh it my was. goodness, that's that's terrifying. So that was the way. Did did you find that as a, a sort of not you know because it's an old cliche that people say you know you go on stage it's like an escape it's like you want to you know you, you want to get into your own a different world to the world mm-hmm. that you're in was that a wee bit of that or how was it for you how did you get into that sort of area? I think 
I'm a I'm a I'm a people pleaser, and um and I and I like I like people to like me. So when I'm when I'm performing, whether I was a kid or even as an adult, um, I always had to try and do like do the best job. So the people watching me, I could see the smiles on their faces. I could see even if I was just performing for my mom and dad in the house, as a, if, if they were happy, it was making me happy. And even now, like a few years ago, I I hosted the the Ollie Murs concert in Dundee. Like I was I was the host. I was on stage in front of ten thousand people, and it's one of the highlights in my life. Um, Amazing doing doing that, and um, and again, it's just having all these people look back at me and and smile and enjoy what I'm putting out there. Um, even as a kid, yeah, just if people were happy, I was happy. Yeah, I get that. I completely get that. And when, what did you want to be when you were at school? What did you, did you have this thing like, I wanted to be an astronaut? What did you want to be? Uh, well, it's, it's funny because I, when I do, when I used to do my, my talks in primary schools, when I did my Lucy's Blue Day stuff, I always told, and I said, there was four things I wanted to be when I grew up. I wanted to be a dad. I wanted to be uh, an author. I wanted to be a radio DJ. And I wanted to be a wrestler. That's you know, four things. Oh, okay. Four things that I wanted to be um, when I grew up. Now I managed. Obviously, I'm a dad, um, and I'm a best-selling author. So I managed to get two. I did uh, have a good stint on the breakfast show at Wave One Hundred Two in Dundee for a while. Excellent. So that's three. Yes. And the next part of this actually is is I, I tell this story slightly different to you because because um, you are somewhat indirectly involved in this so a few years ago you had Davina McCall on on your show um talking about her show um this time next year oh yes yes where people come on and they pledge to do something you know massive to change their life within a year and she was talking about all the all the big stories you know like lose a whole load of weight or reunite with old friends things like that and then she said um, almost sarcastically, she said, there's even a guy on this who wants to be a wrestler. And you both had, you know, a big laugh about that. <laughs> that was me. That was you. That was, that was me. <laughs> that was you. Oh, for goodness sake. How bizarre. How bizarre is that? <laughs> it's, it's a small world. But tell you what, three out of four is no bad, is it, when you think about it? Yeah, well, I got all good. four. I got all four. I had my wrestling match as well. Yeah. Of course, of course. So, yeah, so four out of four, I should say. Four <laughs> out of four is not bad, because I didn't be an astronaut. I never got to be an astronaut, and you have got all of those, which is just, it's just great. It really is. It's brilliant. When when did you have, I mean, the idea for the book, Lucy's Blue Day, that was that was before, that was, that was before COVID and before all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it felt as if you almost kind of, knew what was coming if you know what I mean because you that book obviously right now is even more invaluable than it was when you first wrote it and you first had the idea Mm -hmm. um especially young people because that and I just wondered where you got that idea from what did you you know when you were looking around and, and when you were seeing what was going on in the world and when you thought I've got to really do something here because it's all very well if you think they've got to do something, but you did, you know, you absolutely did. You went and did something. So it's um, it's actually a weird story in a sense because the, the book was never intended to, 
to go public. I never, ever intended to make it public. And I was sitting uh, one day, I was putting my eldest to bed. She was eight at the time. And um, and she was just, and she was having a wee chat. She was chatting away. And she says to me, Daddy, do you ever not like being you? And I says, wow. and I was like, I completely understand what you are feeling because when I was her age, I felt like that. And and I felt That's that amazing. I, I, I didn't like being me and I, and I, and I wanted mm. to be somebody else. And, you know, and that feeling led to all my problems later on in my life. Yeah. And I wanted mm-hmm. to nip that in the bud right away. And I was like, I, I need to do something about this. So she, she eventually went to sleep and I'm sitting on the bottom of her bed and I pull out my phone and I open up the notes app and I just start writing this poem um, about a little girl, a little girl whose hair changes color when it, when her emotions, uh, when her emotions change. And it, it sat for about six months and then I, I, I read it to my wife and she was like, that's amazing. You should turn that into mm. a book. And I was like, ah, nah, nobody will want that. So anyway, I, I went on Facebook and I um, and I was like, does anybody know any illustrators who might want to put this together? Um, and I got recommended to Federica, who drew the pictures um, for the book. And uh, but you know, being a professional il- illustrator, she wasn't cheap, so right. I had to crowdfund, and that's when I went public with it because I said, mm-hmm. if you if you donate a tenner. You know, I'll get to pay the illustrator and I'll give you a copy of the book when it comes out. That's that's how it was going to work. And uh, we did quite well. I raised um, just about a, a grand and a half. You actually um, promoted that as well, that, that fundraiser yeah. um, on really? Twitter. Such a great idea. And then about, so I'd raised about, about £1,500, about £500 short. And I got a message from my friend, um, Leslie, who... Had and you won't believe this, right? This is like the most ridiculous part of this story. About a month prior to her texting me, she had won the lottery. Like, no, no, even just the lottery. Not even just like you may think five numbers, you know, a couple of couple of hundred grand. No, she won the Euro millions and she won 58 million pounds. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. (laughs) Um, so she texts me and she's like, Chris, I've heard about your book I love what you're doing I want to help you take it further um and she ended up she ended up paying um in total I think about 15 grand um to put to pay for the illustrator to pay for the first run of 5,000 books um she paid for the initial run of Lucy's Blue Day Dolls um you know they so she really really supported it and that's how it kind of just it just skyrocketed and it just went mental after that that's incredible. What a brilliant, brilliant story. But all from your little girl saying that one thing. When she said that to you, it was really interesting what you said then, because you said it sort of took you back to how you felt when you were mm-hmm. you were growing up. And and how did you deal with all of those feelings? Because there wasn't a Lucy's Blue Day. You no. know, there, there wasn't any of that for you. So how did that sort of manifest itself? So I'm interested in in that journey that you had. Mm-hmm. It- I, I didn't deal with it. That's that's the kind of that's why I wanted Alyssa to to deal with it because I kept it in. I was brought up in a in an age where you weren't allowed to talk about your feelings. Um you know, it boys. wasn't yeah, especially yeah. boys, yeah. Um, 
you know, you didn't, you didn't talk about your feelings. You, if you felt like you were going to cry, it'd be like, you know, only girls cry, you know, all that sort of rubbish. Um, mm-hmm. And and I should say this because at any time I'm interviewed about this, I always say, you know, like my my dad is 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 amazing, you know, he's, he's and even like now, he's um he's a fantastic dad, he's a fantastic granddad. It was just a different time. And, and, I, and I wasn't encouraged to talk about my feelings. Nowadays, I am. And even now, even my dad's more open about his feelings. But back then, it was it was different. Um, so the the biggest way it manifested itself was after my, my grand passed away. And that was like really sudden because we were really close to my grand. Um, and it was really unexpected. And it was maybe a couple of weeks later that um, I started self-harming. But it it wasn't, you know, and I want to say your typical self-harm because that's not the right thing to, to say, but it wasn't like I didn't do my arms or it it wasn't hidden. Like I I was oh. I was it was my forehead that I was that I was harming. So then so if I was if I was cutting myself in the forehead, my blood would be dripping down my face. Um and I could see that in the mirror. And for mm. some reason that was a release for me. And it, I mean, obviously looking back, it was stupid. It was a stupid, stupid thing to do. But that's how it manifested itself for me. Yeah, and you were in a really bad place. And, and something has to give, doesn't it? If you're not able mm-hmm. to talk about it, whether it's, you know, because of the time that it was or you just don't feel that you can, you can't just bottle that up. It has to come out in some way. You know, you can understand that happening but when did you when did you think to yourself I, I really need to get help here I'm just wondering how how you know what age you would have been and what was going on in your life at, at that point and what other people were saying to you when that was happening or did you do it all in private or, or what, how, how you know I just wonder about other people's reactions so my, my parents were naturally really worried because I, I, I obviously I wasn't hiding the fact that I was that I was self-harming um, mm. because it was, you know, it was right on my forehead. You could see it. Mm. Um, but being a typical teenager, I just thought that my parents were stupid and I told them that I fell over and hit my head. But they knew because it wasn't just one cut. It was like loads of wee cuts. So it, was, it wasn't, I couldn't just fall and hit my head and have loads of wee cuts all over my face. Um, mm. And they told me that when I was older, like, Chris, we weren't stupid. We knew exactly what you were doing. Um and rather than talk talk to me directly about it, they they spoke to the school because I was really close to my music teacher. Um, my music teacher, Mister McLean. Um, we were like that whole class. We were just a really close knit class. You know, it was one of those things where I was allowed to call him by his first name. You know, that sort of stuff. Um, and uh, and so they phoned the school and spoke to him and asked him to speak to me. And um. I, I, I can't remember the whole conversation. I just remember the one part of him asking if I was, if I, if I, if I'd gotten somebody pregnant. Is that why I was, uh, is that why I was lashing out? Because, because I was a sixteen-year-old boy. Apparently, that's that's what I do. But, um, but after that, I kind of realised that you know people were worried about me, and 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 I was opening up a wee bit more, um, more more so to my friends than than anybody else. Um, but it all kind of buried down a lot, and I kept it all buried because I'm I'm kind of jumping back and forward here. But I 
I realized a few years ago that I am a like a, a massive self saboteur. And oh yeah. Everything that that went good in my life, I would sabotage it somehow. And I and I think um deep down I thought to myself that I didn't deserve that success. You know, so when I left school, I went to university. I lasted about nine months in university. There was some self-harming in university as well, unfortunately. Um, and, uh, you know, I started, I started drinking and I just dropped out. I just dropped out of uni completely. Any job that I had, I would, a couple of months in, I would sabotage it and, you know, just not show up. And then I would tell my parents that I got sacked for no reason. You know, and again, it's me thinking my parents were stupid. Um, and that kind of that went on and on. And even like romantic relationships as well. I would, I would, I would sabotage. Um, in a way, well, I'm sure you can imagine how I would sabotage them. I don't need to say it out loud, but um, you know, I'd end up, I ended up maybe cheating on somebody or, um, or one one example is. My my girlfriend, my my longest term girlfriend that I had before I met my now wife was a girl called Laura, and I don't mind naming her because she's named in the book anyway. So and she knows that she's spoken about. Yeah. Um, I pretty much forced her to cheat on me through my own insecurities. So when she would go out um, on a night out with her friends. And I would phone her the next day and I would always and I would ask, ask her the same four questions. I was like, did you have a good time? Yeah. Did you did you get drunk? Yeah or no? Um, did you get home okay? Yeah. Did you cheat on me? And the answer was always no. And that was it, right? Mm. Every single time she went out, I did this. And then the one day I was at college and I was on the phone. It was a pay phone. That's how long ago it was. I was on the payphone and I was like, did you have a good time? Did you, did you, did you cheat on me? And the answer was yes. And my heart just sank. And that was it. Um, so, and even that, I know that even though she did what she did, I know that was my fault. And I know did that. Did you feel it made her, almost made her do that? But that was kind of like you pushing her away. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. 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 100%. Mm-hmm. Although I was heartbroken at the time, and you know, I was, um, I think I genuinely, and this might sound like I'm being dramatic here, but I genuinely spent, I spent about three months in my bed. I was that depressed about it. Um, and my mom asked my, my cousin um, to, to kind of look out for me because she was worried about what I was going to do. You know, it was one of those ones. Um, Gosh. That is very serious. Yeah. Did you have had thoughts like that in your life that you thought the world would be a better place without you in it? Although obviously it wouldn't, but have you ever thought like that? Yeah. Um, so I, I had I went for therapy about two years ago. Um, and my therapist asked me that same question. And she had to define it. So she said, have you ever had suicidal thoughts? And I was like, no, 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 no. Never had suicidal thoughts. No. Oh, God, no. And then she explained to me that suicidal thoughts isn't just, you know, considering doing it, you know, or even getting to the stage of considering doing it. It's, I mean, even just thinking about what would it be like if I wasn't here is 
technically a suicidal thought. And um, that that opened up a lot a lot of things for me as well because I have thought like that. I've thought like that quite often. Um, and but to be honest with you, I don't think I would ever be able to do it because I I'm I'm too nosy. I, you know what I mean? I, I, the whole having the whole world exist without me. Ah, no, we can't have that. No, I'm too nosy to know what's going on in the world. Um, plus, obviously. Nowadays, you know, my life's so much better. I've got the children, I've got my wife, I've got, you know, I've got all that. It's, um, but but back then, I, I can only look in hindsight and say that if if things had gotten really bad, there may have been a time or two that I might have considered it, and there was maybe one or two times where I was maybe I was walking across the like. Not the Kingston Bridge. It was the one, the one next to that because you can't walk across the Kingston Bridge. It's the one, the one before that. Um, there's been a time or two where I was walking across that, and the thought had crossed my mind, um, but it had never gotten to a stage where you know I was maybe climbing or or anything like that. But you know, it had it had crossed my mind. Mm, but it's it had been there. But luckily, yeah, luckily not taking any action on that. What? What sort of, I mean, you know, you said you you you, you dropped out of uni, you know, you, you had this self-saboteur inside you that I know a lot of us have, you know, we, we do, mm-hmm. to a lesser or greater degree. Um, but that obviously affected your life massively. How on earth do you break that habit? What, you know, what what saved you from that? Or, or is it still there inside sometimes? So there is there is one, and it sounds really, really simple when I say it like this, but it was it was my dad. So uh-huh. you're talking years later. So I had I, I got I got hit really really bad with postnatal depression when my eldest was born, which is un- it's, so it's many- nobody talks about this. No. Nobody talks the fact the, the fact that men do suffer as well. Mm-hmm. It's, it's still even to this day it's one of the last taboos, isn't it? People just don't talk about. It. I'm so glad that you have talked about this you know mm-hmm. you talk about it in, you, you, you. so um yeah so i got hit really bad with this and you say that like people think it's unusual in men it's not it's un- it's just unusual for men to talk about it that's that's what it is so um I, I got hit really badly with this postnatal depression you know my my eldest Alyssa was born and i was i was expecting this massive rush of love that you're you're told that you get when you have your kids and um, and I didn't get it. I ju- it just didn't come. Um, and harking back to what I'd said about my parents before, you know, my parents worked really, really hard for us. And, you know, my dad was um, was the breadwinner. And at that point, I was a I was a sales I was a sales guy in Curry's. I was selling computers and I wasn't even doing very well at that. So um, and. Like we didn't have a, a secure home at the time. We were living in my my, my, my father-in-law's house. Um, he was technically renting it to us, but he never charged us any rent. It was all there was nothing secure about the life that I that I thought that I was given for my kids. Right. Um I understand. Compared to what my dad did for us. Because, mm-hmm. and that's what I felt a dad should be, was this this strong man provider you know and and i wasn't that i wasn't bringing in the money 
Um, I wasn't this big straw man. As I mentioned before, I'm a performer. I love musicals. I, um, you know, it's not your typical manly thing. Um, so I felt a failure as a dad because I didn't have this rush of love. I wasn't a big manly man, and um, and I wasn't bringing in enough money to cover the bills. Um, and you know when. You know when the, the midwife or the health visitor comes in not long after the child's born and has this interview with with the mum? And basically the postnatal depression interview, you know. Um, how does your days look? How do you find do you find jokes funny? You know, things like that. And every time my wife answered no to the question, I was on the other side of the room silently answering yes. And in my head. Um and then, so this all kind of manifested itself again. And I'm mean, again back to self-sabotage. So mm-hmm. I'd mentioned before, we didn't have a lot of money. We didn't, um, we, we, were, we were struggling. But I always found a way to try and get the, like, the latest stuff. You know, a big telly, the new iPad, you know, all this sort of stuff. And, and that was my way of sabotaging what, what we had. Unfortunately, I would get this stuff and I wouldn't pay for it. So then people would come to the door and, you know, and I was out and my wife would answer the door and she didn't know anything about it. And there was one particular day where she'd got really, really embarrassed about what happened. And she went, she didn't go to her own family about it. She went to my mom because she knew that my mom would tell her the truth. And and my my mom point blank said to her, just leave him. You know, just just go. You know, he, he doesn't deserve you. Just honestly. Um, and that's because of all this stuff that was happening. And my dad was there as well. And I'd finished I'd finished work at the day and she'd come and pick me up and I knew that she was she was angry at me. And we went back to my parents' house and my wife and the kids and my mum went out and just left me left me with my dad. And I and as I said before, my dad is not very um, open on talking about his feelings and things like that. And he, and all he said to me was, "If I if I lose those girls because of you, I will never forgive you." Talking about my right. kids, of course. And and that was the wake up call. Really, it was yeah. that that you that. Oh, interesting. Do you, do you, I mean, that's quite, because that's quite tough love, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That is tough when he's saying that to you. You know, you, you cannot do this because this will happen. Mm-hmm. And that's so interesting. And then did things, did something just click? Or, or how, how did that, it's very interesting that it just took that from your dad. Yeah. Oh, shut up. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> so, as, as, I mean, as I said, like, my dad's not, no one for speaking and when when he said that like he said that i will never forgive you i know that he meant that right and and if if my wife had gone and took taking the girls with her and and he had lost those girls i i know for a fact that he would never have forgiven me for that and that scared me because normally we just sit quietly and just stew over things you know, when 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 my granny died, he didn't um, he didn't speak up about it, but I but he did cry at the funeral, and that's the first time I ever seen him cry. Um, 
so when he said that, it just it just really, really hit home that I could lose everything. Not only could I lose my kids, my wife, but my parents as well. Everything that the yeah. whole your whole support system is just just gone. And yeah, yeah, something takes that 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 reality. And did things change immediately, or did it take a little while? You know, did how how did things happen then? Um. Well, obviously, it wasn't the case of like, the next day, all of a sudden, I had loads of money and, and a great job and a house. You know, it, it, it did take time um, to build, but I had but a new... Mo- yeah, you changed, didn't you? Yeah. So I had, I had, a, I had a motivation now. Gotcha. And, um, and, you know, it did, it did start to build and I started... Um, so I still had this, this job. Oh, no, I wasn't because I was signed off my job at Curry's for, for depression. Ironically enough, um, but eventually I ended up um, leaving that job completely. And it was at that point I decided to start chasing my my dreams. And so I started working at um, community radio. Um, yeah, yeah, community radio. That's the one that you do for free, isn't it? Yeah, community radio. So I started, I started uh, volunteering at the community radio station and... Um, and and built up a nice wee audience doing that, and it was it was at that point. I think I think you and I had met at this point, and this is that you get meeting you, and this might sound really corny, right? But meeting you was a kind of turning point as well, because the story of how how this came about, and I don't even know if you know this story, right? But so you and I had met in Aleth, and yeah. and and I had. We were backstage, and you were you were talking to a whole bunch of other people, and that was and I I was kind of relatively shy and into myself at the time, and then you you stopped talking and you looked right at me and you went here you you can sing by the way like just that's what you said, <laughs> and it just it really boosted my confidence and just and I was like oh my god dude Lauren Kelly thinks that I can sing this is amazing, so. It was about a week later, I, I emailed your, your manager just to say, can you pass a message on to Lorraine um, just to say thank you um, for, for coming to the show and thank you for this and that next thing. And, and I'd signed off the email and my phone number was on the bottom of the email. And then you made the biggest mistake of your life by texting me. <laughs> Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. <laughs> <laughs> And saying, uh, oh no, it was, it was lovely to meet you. Um, you know, uh, what's your address? I'm going to send you some GMTV swag. And yes, and, GMTV. And uh, and it was it was that moment where I realised, you know, I can actually make stuff happen, and make stuff, mm. and 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 you know, make some massive things happen. So at that moment, I saved your phone number and that's, and as, as you know, now, anytime my name pops up in your phone, I guarantee you, you're like, Oh Christ, what does he want now? <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> um, but you're right. Sometimes you take one wee thing and mm-hmm. what, did, what happened after that? What kind of things did you do? Cause I know you were doing the radio. Yeah. So I did, um, I, I was doing community radio and I'm, as, a, as a, I'm a massive wrestling fan. Right. So I, I, I managed to talk them into lit letting me have a, a, a wrestling radio show where we talk about the stuff or the wrestling stuff that happened, right? And um, I'd interviewed this this wrestling manager. His name's Eric Bischoff, his name is. Um, and I'd interviewed him and it went really, really well. And so much so that Eric, he, he tweeted, you know, I've never had such a professional interview in all my life. You know, I said, so great. And I knew that Eric Bischoff was close to Hulk Hogan. Like, they were they were friends, Mm-hmm. And I thought, right, I could, I could, I could make something of this here. And I, and I emailed Eric, and I was like, listen, I know that you're friends with Hulk Hogan, and I know that you, you, you really enjoyed your interview with me. Do you think Hulk might be interested in talking to us? He emailed me back saying, leave it with me. And that was that. I thought, right, that's the last I'll hear of it. Two days later, I got an email back saying. Um, Terry, she's his real name. Terry is really interested to talk. Here's his phone number. Wow. And I was like, holy, the biggest wrestler of all time. Oh, of course. Yeah. Huge star. He's You've nervous. interviewed him before. Um, I know. Joy. <laughs> I, I remember <laughs> it. Yes. Yeah, because it's on YouTube. You, you did an interview with him. And, and I always remember it was like, I made a wee comment at the bottom of the YouTube video. I was like, why is Lorraine Kelly flirting with Hulk Hogan? That's... <laughs> oh, why not? <laughs> That's true. Um, so, yeah, so I, I interviewed, we interviewed him the next week and all of a sudden these community radio station numbers just shot up through the roof. And I, and I thought, right, I'm, I'm making things happen here and, and, it's, and it's going well. Um, so I... Uh, a new sports radio station was launching in Glasgow at the time. And, uh, and I thought, oh, why not? I'll send in my demo and see what happens. Um, and uh, I ended up getting the, the mid-morning slot for that show. And that was my first ever paid radio gig. So at this point in my life, um, I was still 
I had this one goal in my life in terms of radio, and that was to get on to Wave 102, which might not seem like a huge goal for a lot of people, because it's particularly radio, because it's it's local radio. It's not like a big like TFM or Bauer or, you know, it's not a huge thing like that. But for some reason, I always wanted to work at Wave 102. Because it was, because it was, it was, yeah, local radio, yeah. I used to listen to Lindsay. It's really good. Yeah. So I, uh, I literally phoned that radio station every single day for a year, um, before they even thought about letting me through the door, and um, I ended up having to cover for somebody for a fortnight, and that's the kind of first thing that they did. They put me in. They got me into cover for um, for Alistair for a fortnight. Had an amazing time doing that. I love telling stories. Um, so I was telling all these all these silly stories about stupid things that had happened to me, like the fact that a seagull once stole my macaroni pie um, <gasps> and at the at the overgate. You know, <laughs> I love that. No uh, seagulls are deadly. Oh, no seagulls. Oh, cheeky. And then eventually uh, the breakfast show came up and uh, I thought, right, I'm going to try. I'm going to go and try for this. I'm going to go and get it. And yep. lo and behold, got the breakfast show. Um, probably one of the best three years of my life doing the breakfast show, getting up, waking up Dundee every morning. Um, and again, I, I, I was just, I was making things happen. You know, rather than back before when I was, when I, when I was, intentionally not making things happen. I was actually, I was doing the exact opposite now. Yes. So to give you an example of, of taking an opportunity and, and kind of making it bigger than what it is, um, I was given the chance to go to Glasgow to interview Mel C from the Space Girls. And mm. <clears throat> I was told by my, my program controller, you know, just, just go down, interview her, just box standard interview, you know, having her name on the show will make it something It'll bring, bring some people in. I was all right, fine, fair enough. But I wanted to make content for my breakfast show. Of course. And I thought, how can I make this into something bigger than what it is? So I grabbed my, my daughter's ukulele and I learned how to play, <laughs> yeah, I learned how to play Baby When You're Gone um, on the ukulele. <laughs> so I, when I got down, when I got down to Glasgow and we're sitting in the interview, um, to be honest with you, I, I, I shot out of it, right? And I thought, I thought, nah, I'm not going to do this. I just started interviewing her. And then she went, start poking out your bag. And I was and I was like, okay, so it's a ukulele. I've learned to do this. And she's like, right, let's go. Let's do it then. <laughs> and and that's the story how I can say that I've managed to sing with a Spice Girl. Fantastic. You see? You see what happens? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's absolutely. It really is. And how were you feeling at that time? How was your life going at that time? I mean, where, you know, it was all of a sudden everything was wonderful and that saboteur had been fully kicked out or or how were things? So, and I'm sure you know this and and, and you might even still go through this, even though you've had such a, such a massive career. Um, um, imposter syndrome. So oh, yes. I, I felt like I'd, I, I always felt like I'd, I'd, some somebody's going to catch me out, you know. Somebody's going to yeah, you're going to reali- yeah. yeah, yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> so somebody's going to realize that that I don't belong here and 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 you know put me out, um, mm. which I think is why 
I always tried so hard to to prove myself in there. So that's why I ended up singing singing with Mel C. That's why I ended up hosting the Ollie Murs concert. Um, you know, it was just and because the Ollie Murs concert came came purely by accident as well. Because normally they get the the local DJ from the big station to do it. So right. So Stuart Webster, um, who did the TFM breakfast show at the time, he was he was expecting the gig, and I think they were all expecting him to get the gig. And then I had Ollie on my show and I think him and I just had a nice rapport. And at the end of the show, he asked me on air, well, do you want to do it? Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, yeah. Of what course. are you going to say? Yeah. What are you going to say? Yeah. Anyway. Um, so, but I always had that wee niggle in the back of my mind that, you know, I, I, I don't deserve this. I don't, mm-hmm. um, but I kept fighting for it. But eventually, what happened that Wave Wave One Hundred Two was um, was sold to DC Thompson. Um, they bought the license, but they didn't buy the presenters, and oh. I was made redundant. I was actually, and this is how harsh it was actually. And I told this story on on last week's podcast. Um, so I was on air at the time, and they asked me to pre-record my last hour of the show so I could go in for this meeting. Um. And that meeting was being told that the show that was going out as we spoke was my last oh. show. Oh, Tris, that's absolutely brutal. It was heartbreaking. That is brutal. Yeah. What so is that loving doing what you do? You know, you're absolutely loving what you do. It's successful. Ah, mm-hmm. oh, dear. And how did you deal with that though? I I didn't deal with it very well. Um, so because at that point in my life, I'd, I'd uprooted the whole family. I'd moved us to Forfar, um, so right. I could so I could um, work in Dundee. Um, I was about two months away from uh, major surgery, and three months away from my third child being born. So oh my goodness! It was a, it wasn't a good worst time. Worst time. Mm-hmm. No, it's never good, right? No. But that's that's that really is. But the old me would have went into this slump of um you know nobody likes me i don't deserve this um i'm just going to sit and just moat about it but um literally as i left the studio that day that i got that i got um, made redundant i was on my phone and i was emailing like every other station in the country basically to try and get another job yeah. um i eventually got a job at uh, bfbs in edinburgh so it's the army radio. Yeah, very um, good, very good. It's a, a great station. Just unfortunately, the commute was a bugger because um, I lived in yes. Forfar <laughs> and I, I was I wasn't moving again. Um, Ooh, that is so, it, yeah, so it, it took its toll. Eventually, I had to give that up, um, and mm-hmm. I went back to my my old career of catering, and I was just I was a, a restaurant manager for a wee while, basically just to bring to bring the money in of course of course you've and, got to do it you're yeah. the provider again yeah, yeah. provider yeah. yeah but this time I was enjoying it and I was I felt I felt like a like like a provider you know I wasn't mm. and nothing against anybody who's got like an entry-level job but when it when you're in your mid-30s and you know you've got a family to look after you know going into an entry-level job 
for me didn't it, it just didn't sit right it wasn't wasn't for me so when I was a restaurant manager and you know I was a bit, a bit higher up, I was like okay this is I can do this I, I feel better about myself it was maybe a, more about the position than anything else um, and it was in that job that I wrote Lucy's Blue Day Right. And to be honest, do you think if you had been doing the radio job, that demanding job, I mean, I know what it's like to get up early to do breakfast telly and you were doing breakfast mm-hmm. radio. Would you have had the time or the opportunity to do that, do you think? Do you think it was uh, this sort of aligned and, and, it, and it all worked? If yeah. You, if you know what I mean. Everything yeah. led me to everything that I'd been through, all the bad stuff that I'd went through led me yeah. to, to Lucy. And that's that's always what okay. I say. So mm. all the 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 the, the self harm, the self sabotage, the fact that I used I mean, I used to be um when I went on that this time next year, so I was twenty five stone. Um yes. and uh, and I dropped all the weight and uh, and you know, um it all led me to Lucy. So if I was still on the radio, no, Lucy wouldn't be here. And so maybe maybe it was the right thing to have happened. Yeah. It doesn't feel it at the time, does it? But maybe it was. Maybe it was because you know you you did this incredible book and that has helped so so many people. So many people. I wondered about that. I wondered about that, Chris, about the feedback that you got from the from the book and continue to get from that. So the the the, the first kind of major feedback I got was um, was. It was from you, actually. Um, it said, you know, it was such a such a clever way to talk about mental health, and I always that's that's still on the website. It's still and it's got a picture of you, and it says such a clever way. Um, oh, that's good. <laughs> Stephen Stephen Fry um, called it charming. He did, uh, and um, just love. And and just recently, Jason Manford actually um, posted about it, and. He, uh, it was thanks to him, it got to number one actually, and because he posted about it, and within four hours the book was at number one. Ooh. It was, it was amazing. That's fantastic. That's brilliant. In terms of the children, there's, um, there's a couple of stories that I, I, I like to tell. I say I like to tell. I mean, they're not really nice stories, but so about a week or two after the book came out, I got an email from. Uh, a grandparent or a carer. It was a carer for this little boy, eight years old, who had lost his mum the year prior. And he had gotten to a stage where he was deliberately trying to hurt himself so he could go to heaven and be with his mum. Oh, God. At seven years old. He turned eight by the time the, the email had come around. Um, so he'd been going through all this different therapy and nothing was working for him. Um, and then they bought him Lucy's Blue Day as just part of his therapy, something else for him to read. Um, and when I got the email, the email said that um, they now read this story to him every single day. And he has oh. not self-harmed once since since he got the book. Because- oh, Chris, that's brilliant. Because he can That's talk brilliant. about his feelings and he can... It's... You gave him that opportunity with that mm-hmm. story, which actually really resonated with him as it does with children and adults. And 
that's an incredible thing. And that will that won't just have happened to him. You you must have stories like that, so many stories like that, but also the ones that you will never hear. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? You're you're just know of the ones that people have got in touch with you, but there must be so many children and so many parents and and, and grandparents and, and, and carers and all the rest of it who have have used it because that's the thing you can read it as a story but you can use it as a tool mm-hmm. to spark those conversations which are so important that that kind of takes me back to the whole imposter syndrome thing as well as like because i've got i've got no qualifications so as i said i dropped out of uni i dropped out of college i've, I've, got, I've got zero qualifications um and sometimes I think, what right do I have, you know, making this change in people's life? Like, mm. I, I mean, who, who am I to, because there, there was another story that I got, I, I, got, a, I got a video message from um, WWE wrestler Kevin Owens. And his, he, got a, he got a message or an email from a dad of one of the girls who'd school that I'd went to visit. And had said that this little girl, and again, eight years old, she was on suicide watch at the time. And I'd went to the school, I did my visit, I did the whole story about how when I was younger, I wanted to do four different things in my life and I'd managed to achieve it all. And I'd read Lucy's Blue Day and this little girl had got so inspired that it, it just completely turned her life around. And she and this dad had sent this message to Kevin Owens to get him to send me a message to thank me for saving his daughter's life. Oh, that's and, fantastic. And it just... That must mean so much. It, yeah. It, it floored me, and it still does, to think that I'm just I'm just a normal guy just sitting here in, in my house in Forfar, um, <laughs> that, that, that some little girl down in England is, is walking about and still here because of me. And it just... I just kind of get my head around that. Mm. it is it is brilliant though and it's an amazing thing to have achieved it really has you know it's just been great and it will continue that's the thing about the book it's timeless mm-hmm. you know the story is timeless like that that the classic now and can be read for the next generation your children can read it to their children you know mm-hmm. that's that's the thing about it it will still resonate it's like what i was saying at the very beginning of our conversation it's needed now more than ever um, and because our kids, we, I don't think we know the damage on our children's mental health um, at, at this point. I think it's only going to be in the next year that it's really, really going mm-hmm. to start manifesting. It's what's happened to them during that whole time. And that's where they're really going to need that book. And I was I was really scared um, when when COVID first kind of came, as, as everybody was, you know, um, yeah, about how it would affect things. Um, because the only way that I could promote the book was to go and visit schools and then yeah. i would go and visit schools and people would buy the book and i'd use that money to go and visit more schools and then it was, it was, a, it was a nice cycle the way it was working yeah so the school visits stopped the book sales stopped of course yeah which meant that again i couldn't provide for my family um but i i dealt with it differently this time that was that was a you know i was i had oh, yes okay i had to go on benefits for a while but it didn't bother me. You know, it was like, okay, I'm here. This is because this is when I went into therapy and, mm-hmm. you know, my, my counselor or my, my therapist, um, she's not going to go, right. Okay. I've got rid of COVID. You can go back into schools now. That's not what their job is. You know, her job was to help me deal with the situation that I'm in now. Yeah. 
you know, help me deal with my now. And, you know, I can't change it. So how can I deal with it? And, uh, and you know, unfortunately, you know, we had to close the, the Lucy's Blue Day as a business um, and as a, as a community interest company because it was just, it was costing us too much to keep, to keep afloat. Um, but as you say, the book's always going to be there. It's, it's never going to go away. And, and that, that comforts me to know that even though I'm not actively out there and I'm not actively doing my assemblies and, and, and things like that, it still comforts me that the book's always going to be there and it's always going to be helping people long after I'm away. No, it will. I mean, it, it really will. And also maybe you will get that opportunity again, hopefully sooner rather than later, to do that vital work that you were doing, which is just, you know, because there's nothing better than having the storyteller sit and telling the story. You know, mm-hmm. in, a, in a classroom, it's it's fine to do stuff online and Zooms and all the rest of it, but you physically present there talking and taking questions and, and all of that is, is just the best thing. This takes us on, I guess, to, to Big Boys Do Cry um, and where and where that all came from. And was that a lockdown project? Was that when you thought, OK, I've always wanted to do this, was writing that book something you always wanted to do and now... I've actually got the time. I can, I can do it now. Yeah, it was. It was. It was actually kind of coming along the same uh, lines as when I was doing my my therapy because I would mm-hmm. I would write chapters in my book and then I'd have my therapy session a couple of days later and I'd be talking about what I was writing and right. and the book yeah, and it's funny because what one of the things that I eventually realised after talking to the therapist whilst I was writing the book is that I never properly grieved my my grand's death mm-hmm. because I had to man up, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I didn't, and because it was so sudden, and 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 I ended up, I had to play the organ. I, I played the organ at my grand's funeral, so I didn't really get to do the whole funeral thing either. Um, yeah. And so that kind of opened my eyes a wee bit, and I eventually got to kind of, even 20 odd years later, grieve um, my, my grand passing. But um, the book itself, I, people always told me that I've got loads of interesting stories to tell, you know, like like the Mel C story, the Oli Mars story, or, or, you know, I mean, I went, I lived in Germany for a couple of years. The wrestling. <laughs> yeah, the yeah. wrestling, you know. <laughs> and and I, I was told, you should write a book. So I just, I, I sat and, and I did it. And it was it was done in a way that I was sitting I was sitting at this microphone, and I was just I was talking to Microsoft Word, and I was talking it, and uh. Microsoft Word was writing it, and then my wife would edit it, um, and we turned it into this book, and it it's there to show people because yes, okay, you got all these celebrity books that where you know famous people. I've went through these hardships in their life and then, you know, they find success and all of a sudden they're rich and they're loaded and they're big houses in the middle of London, you know, so whatever. But I'm just a normal person. And I went through all this stuff and I achieved relative success, but I am still, you know, you, I can still, you still see me walking down the street and nobody will recognize me. And, you know, I'm just, I'm just me. And that was just, to, it was to show that, even the average person can go through all this stuff and come out the other side 
um, with the sun still shining, and that's that's the whole the kind of whole point of the book. Not very much so. It's um, what I like about it is it's optimistic. Um, you know, you you don't spare yourself. You, you don't, and I think that was important because you're very honest. And was that part of it when you were writing? It, you thought, right, okay. I am going to tell these stories about how bad it got, you know, and I was self-harming and, you know, I, I did have this inner saboteur and I kept doing these daft things, you know, to, to make sure that nothing good would happen. Um, but I think that's really important to put all of that in there. You know, it's it's important that that's put, because that's your story. That's part, mm-hmm. very much part of what. And I had to, I had to warn, I had to warn my parents about what was mm. what was coming in the book, and I and I said that to them. I was like, yeah, there's a few things in here that that you're you're not going to like, and you know that that have happened to me in the past, um, and that's when I found out, and that's when they says, oh, don't be daft. We weren't we weren't, we weren't stupid. We we knew that exactly what you were doing. Um, the same with my wife and like my sister and my family. And I was, I, was, I just had, I had to warn them that there was, there was stuff in here that they might not, they might not like. Um, because I had to be honest, not only just with with the reader, but I had to be honest with myself as well. Because if I was, if I was putting that out there, I had to accept my issues for myself before anybody else could accept them. Do you know what no, I mean? That Does make, that make sense? Yeah, it does make total sense. Was there anything that's in there that you, you know, maybe what one thing that you kind of hesitated over, but then put it in anyway? Or, or did you just think, oh, I've got to do this? Um, it was it was more about the 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 self-harm. Yeah. Because yeah. I didn't want anybody to know that that I did that. Um okay. and that's I think that's the only thing. I no, tell a lie. Um, I wasn't sure about putting the stuff about my marriage in it as well, but when like when my marriage was like really on the rocks because nobody really knew that that we went to marriage counselling and we went to, you know, we, we went through all that and I had to make sure that my wife was okay with talk with, with me talking about that. Um, because as I said, like she didn't go to, she didn't really speak to her family about me, but she went she went to my family about me. <laughs> Um, so there was certain things that were going to come out that that not a lot of people knew. Um, but no, apart from that, I, I I am a pretty open book anyway. So um, there was nothing that, apart from those two things. Everything else was just I, I just sat there and, and they were it just right, not came out. Yeah, yeah, and you and your wife, as you said, she was very much part of the whole process. You know, she was mm-hmm. looking at it. Your, it was all okay and, and helping you to, to edit it as well. What do you want people to take away from Big Boys Do Crime? What, what would you like when somebody sort of finishes it? What would you like them to have learned or experienced or, you know, take with them? What do you think? It's it's an old cliche, right? And every anybody who's, who's anybody who's spoken about mental health, I've been a, a mental health advocate, right? And, it's the old cliche of it's okay not to be okay. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, it's, it is cheesy and it, it is, it is that cliche, but it's true. And that's, that's what's the most important thing is that, and that's what I, I tried to teach the children when I went into, into the schools that no matter what you feel, it is absolutely okay. Because if you, if you weren't supposed to feel it, you wouldn't be feeling it. 
Like when I go in, when I when I used to go into schools, I would say, put your hand up if you've ever had a cold, and they'd all put their hands up. And I would say, do you know why we've all had a cold? It's because we're human and we're supposed to feel that feel like that. It's the same whether you're sad, angry, happy, jealous, no matter what emotion you're feeling, you are supposed to feel it because you are human. And that's what it is. And it took me a long time to accept that no matter what my feelings are, um, it's it's okay to feel them. And that's what um, I would like people to take away is no matter how bad it gets, it's okay to feel like that. Just get through it. It will get better. That is perfect. And that's exactly what children should be told. You know, they, they really should. I th- think we're getting better, Chris. I do think we're getting better. I think there's still there's still a ways to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but at least we're talking about mental health now. What we need now is action, you know, for plans to, you know, it's, it's fine to talk about it and, 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 you know, ear problems. Absolutely, of course it is. But then people need help. Like you said, you had therapy. You know, no matter, it might be medication, it might be therapy, it might be what, what whatever suits you, you know, because mm-hmm. obviously one size doesn't fit all. Um, but it's really important to, to get that help and to make that first step, especially for blokes. So, Chris, what about the future? You know, we, you've got your, your four things you said you <laughs> wanted to achieve. Being a dad, first of all, which is obviously the most important, best-selling author, um, a wrestler, and hosting a radio show. You've done all them. So what's next? So... Through through lockdown, I, I I had this newfound passion for helping people. That was my that was my thing. Right. I, I loved it. I love I love helping people. So and I wanted to get into the charity sector. And I'd applied for a whole bunch of different jobs with a whole bunch of different charities. And I got I got rejected quite a lot, um, which the old me wouldn't have dealt with very well. But now I'd, I was like, right, okay, I understand that there's thousands of people all vying for these jobs. Um, I just need to get my head down and go. And then this uh, fundraiser job came up with the Archie Foundation. And I'd heard about the Archie Foundation um, before when I was on the radio and when they did that, you know, that massive Urwilly bucket trail um, yes. a few years ago. It was brilliant. brilliant. Um, very, but wasn't it? Uh, it was. They raised um, just under a million pounds with that. Um, it was unbelievable. So yeah, so I went in and I and I I, I had this interview with them and uh, I got the job thankfully, and now that is my my, my full time job is helping uh, fundraise to help children who visit Nine Wells Hospital in Dundee. Um, we're just about to open up a brand new children's theatre suite, uh, Ward Thirty, um, at Nine Wells. Um, raised two million pounds to um wow. to get that done, um. And Lucy's never going to go away, but I can see myself being with Archie for a long time. Mm, mm. Well, it, it kind of ticks all the boxes for you mm-hmm. when you think about it. Doesn't it? It's it's kind of like almost you've been, all of the things that you've done have led to this point in your life where you've got all of these different skills that you've learned that you can use to really make a difference, which yeah. is fantastic. And there's not many people that can say that about their job that it makes a difference, that it changes lives, that it has that effect. And that must, you know, that, that surely that inner, that horrible inner saboteur now is, is, is quietened yeah. <laughs> and gone, like to think, I hope. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think he's, he's still in there in the sense that um, this is my first, this is my first 
proper, you know, fundraiser job, my first job working in the in the third sector. And I think, you know, deep down he's going, ah, you don't know what you're doing. Ah, you're going to screw this up. You know, it's all right. You're going to, you're going to make an arse of this, Chris. But I can, I can control, I can control them better now. And I don't, and as much as I'm kind of personalizing this, this, this feeling, um, I don't listen to what that part of me has got to say. You know, because right now I'm working on a on a win your wedding competition where people where couples raise like money for Archie and the couple who raises the most money wins their wedding. Something that's that the Archie Foundation has never done. Um no, I don't think anybody's done that. I think that's a brilliant idea. Fantastic. Uh, so it says yeah, it's 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 great. I love it. It's it's honestly, as much as all the different things that I've done in my life, this is without a doubt the best job I've ever had. Oh, that's great. That's so good to know. It really is. Do you know what, Chris? It's been a joy talking to you. It really has. Thank you for everything that you are doing and that you have done. Um, like you said, the, the Lucy books, Lucy Blue Day is going to be around a lot. And I can see it getting a, a, a definitely getting a resurgence during this year and the next. Um, and then Boys Do Cry is out too. So it's all happening. Oh wow! Listen, I'm going to say thank you to you as well for for taking the time to do this for me. I know, I know that I can be um, a bit of a pain in the arse at times um, when it comes to, but and it, it kind of all kind of comes full circle because you you're on the receiving end of me making stuff happen. <laughs> exactly, exactly. No, I always like to hear from you. Don't be daft. It's it's um it's good and it's been an absolute joy to talk to you and good luck with everything that you're doing and uh, and good luck in the future and thank you just keep doing what you do. I do want to say a massive thank you to Lorraine for taking the time out and actually talking to me today. Um, it, it was an amazing chat. It was great to catch up with her and and get my story out there as well uh, hopefully you enjoyed that as well if you did please tell your friends tell your family post it on social media just let people know that the podcast is here and join me next week for episode four of the peer project podcast with wrestling referee aew referee aubrey edwards i promise she'll be on next week and i'm working on some other really cool stuff as well um thank you very much for joining us again have a good one and i'll see you soon Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.